silly or, uh, or stupid because you were distracted by something else. Anybody? <laughs> Let me tell you uh, something that happened to me. This, I, I, I like cream in my, in my coffee. So I'm, I, I got a couple of those mini moos and I picked them up and took them back to my desk and I had some coffee and I, I, I opened one and I put it in and I, I opened the next one and I got distracted and I, I opened one and I, I, I put it into the, the coffee and I th- threw the, you know, the plastic thing away. I opened the second one, I got distracted and I poured it into the trash. <laughs> Just, what? In large measure, that's, that's a little bit of what um, is happening uh, in the book of Haggai. They came back into the land, and they got distracted. But it became more than just a distraction. It became more than something that was just silly or stupid. It became an issue of they started to live for their own priorities rather than God's. Instead of working on the temple, instead of developing and rebuilding the temple and laying the foundation for the temple and and getting on with that work, which was the specific work that God said he was calling them back to the land to do, they got distracted and they started living instead for their own priorities. They started living for their own comfort, convenience, and security. And so they started well for about three years and then for 16 years they didn't give God priority and God's ways and God's mission priority in their lives. And then the book of Haggai happens. And it happens over a 114-day period. Uh, how do we know that? Because it's really very particularly dated, the first day of the sixth month. And then the last message comes, the message we're going to look at this morning, comes on the 24th day of the ninth month. And they had th- a 30-day calendar. So sixth month, 30 days, seventh month, 30 days, eighth month, 30 days, 24 days into the ninth month. And the second time on that day, this message, uh, final message comes to um, Zerubbabel um, through uh, Haggai. And when that happens, uh, it's, it's kind of the culmination of, at first, the first message was to Zerubbabel and uh, to uh, the, the governor and to the high priest. Uh, the next message was to um, the high priest, and the final message is just to Zerubbabel. So the first message was to Zerubbabel, the high priest, and the nation. Second message to the priest, and third message now comes to uh, this guy named Zerubbabel. Anybody tempted to name their children Zerubbabel? I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's what we're, we're, we're going to do. So with that, would you um, stand for the reading of God's word? Haggai chapter 2, looking towards the manger. And you'll, uh, you'll really understand why this is a good Christmas text tomorrow night. But here's the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. 
I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, every one by, by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, and de declares the Lord, and make you a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. God's word for us this morning. Um, Zerubbabel must have in his time appeared like a Hebrew, uh, like a hero. Um, and despite the fact that there is in his family uh, and in his family line, in his family tree, there is a sadness that in his family tree. And the sadness is uh, there's another character back in the family tree of Zerubbabel that we're told in Jeremiah that because of that person's sin, because of their wickedness, because of how evil they were, no one born to that family from Conaniah on will ever be king over Israel. And now we have Zerubbabel. That's a problem. Because he, he has this job, he has a significant job. He's the governor now. And the line of, he, he does trace his lineage back to David. The Messiah has to be uh, from that line. But there in, is in this family tree, there's a shame in the back of our family tree in Zerubbabel's, even though he has this position as the governor of the nation, th their whole family knows that nobody from our line, Conaniah's line, is ever going to be king. And ever going to be the Messiah. And that was the hope of many, many Jewish people. Is that somehow they would get intermarried into David's line and that somehow they would have a part in sending the Messiah to the world. But he must have, he must have appeared like a hero at first. I mean, after all, he's leading the nation back to uh, Jerusalem uh, leading them on this task to rebuild the temple. He is leading the nation for those three years and then those 16 years for the three years where they actually worked on the temple and then the 16 years that they didn't, he's still continuing to govern and continuing to help the nation. He represented the continuing line of, of David even though he, his, he, he couldn't be king, he was a governor. But he'd been selected to lead the people uh, back to uh, uh, to the promised land. He had the foundation of the, the second temple laid. Uh, he had started that work. Nehemiah chapter 16, verse 47 says this, says that he helped to set up the good priorities with regard to worship and service and giving associated with the temple. That's something that he did in those first three years when they first got back. Verse 47 in, in chapter, Nehemiah says this, And all of Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. That was to set up, set up the temple worship. They did well. They started really well. He must have appeared to be the man for, of the moment. But he started well, but 16 years after that, things are not going well. And finally, God sends this message to Zerubbabel. It's exciting for me 
to look at that and see that 16 years of failure and apathy and lack of effort in seeking to please God that, that for both Zerubbabel and the nation that God mercifully does not abandon his people but rather he announces his intention to bless his people despite those 16 years of failure. He doesn't write Zerubbabel off. He doesn't write the nation off. He doesn't say that's it. 16 years of disobedience and failure and lack of fruit is all I can bear. I've had it with you. Be gone. He doesn't say that. Instead, what God says, look at verse 19 that we looked at last week. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree, they have yielded nothing but from this day on I will bless you. God says, I, I have determined that I am going to bless you despite the past, despite what has happened. God says to the nation, I am for you, I am with you. From that day on, they turn back to God. God declares that, uh, that uh, he, was, he has been with them uh, and that he is going to be with them and that he's now going to bless them and he's getting ready, ready to bless the nation and move the line of the Messiah forward. But in these few verses, God renews his promise uh, to Abraham. And what was the promise to Abraham? Anybody remember? In you, God, God said, I'm going to bless you, and in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, how has that happened? We just sang about it. All the nations of the earth are blessed by the seed of Abraham when the Messiah comes, the one who is going to lay down his life and atone for sin. It's exciting to see what God, how God is working. There's two things that God says that he is going to do uh, in, this, in this text. Two things that he says he's, he's going to do for the nation. And the first thing is he is going to overturn the humiliation of his people. That's what he's saying in verses 22 and 23. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the, of the kingdoms of the nation and overthrow the, the strength of the, uh, uh, and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down and everyone by the sword of his brother. The fact that Israel is small and defenseless and it makes no difference to God. The fact that Israel at this time probably has about 100,000 uh, believers. That's what scholars estimate. There's about 100,000 believers in, uh, in Israel at this time. And yet God says that that fact that they're small does not affect the fact that he is going to shake the earth and that he is going to uh, bless them and he's going to accomplish this. In fact, when God announces that he's about to shake the earth, it is an accomplished fact. It will happen. It will always happen. What, God, God, what will happen is always the thing that God declares. So when he says shake, is that, is that an earthquake? I don't know. Maybe. But here's what it means. It means that God is going to display his divine and sovereign power in the nation of Israel, through the nation of Israel at that time. He's going, he, he was going to do that. And then he says, I'm going to overthrow the forces of paganism in, in our world even, are, are up now. But God says he's going to overthrow them. They might have looked around and said, man, Babylon is big. 
Babylon is in control. Babylon is the mighty uh, nation of this time. They dominate the whole world for the, for, uh, the, as far as they're concerned. They dominate the whole region. Babylon looks big and, and impossibly hard to defeat. Israel looks tiny and small, and yet God says, I'm going to shake the foundations. I'm going to shake the nation. Look what he says when he, when he says to overthrow the throne of the kingdom. The throne of the kingdoms. The word throne in Hebrew is uh, singular, and, and the word kingdoms is plural. So what, what is the throne of the kingdoms? What's God going to do? I think what he's talking about is that the power, he, God is going to overthrow the power behind all of the kingdoms of the earth. Now, what is that? Who is that? Who has that power? Satan. And so the announcement is God is, God is about to shake the way the world works. He's going to do that in and through Israel. And he gives this message to Zerubbabel as an encouragement uh, to him. The throne of the kingdoms, the power behind the kingdoms of the earth, the evil one is going to be put down. That's part of the announcement. And he's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms. Now, when we talk about kingdoms, we often talk about a nation's economic strength. We talk about an, uh, a, a nation's technological strength. We talk about certain nations' cultural strength or cultural history. But generally, when we're talking about the strength of the nations in the Scripture, we're talking about military might. And right now, in, in Babylon, uh, at, at that time, not right now, um, then, Babylon looked like they were completely undefeatable. And God says, I'm going to overthrow them. I'm going to put them down. And your humiliation is going to end. Then there's this phrase that it's going to happen in a miraculous way. Overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. All of this is going to take place. And everyone by the sword of his brother. There was a couple of incidents in the Old Testament where that happened, where nations formed a coalition against Israel, and then they fought against one another. And Israel wins the battle, wins the day. God says something like that is going to happen in the future as a result of his, of his plan to bless Zerubbabel and, and the nation because they have started to obey. They have, they have turned, they have repented, they have begun to walk with him. He says that by the sword of his brother, I have no idea what that means, but I wonder, I wonder if it if it's, isn't a suggestion of the kinds of things that we're seeing in our day. That is... We see a lot of Muslim terrorism around the world, right? That is, there isn't a country in the world that isn't uh, up in arms about that, except a couple of Muslim countries. But, but they're actually, the Muslim terrorists are actually killing one another as well by the sword of one another. Now, these, these, some of these terms are metaphors. We don't, today, we don't have horses and riders, right, generally, we don't go into battle with swords. Generally, we don't. But it's a metaphor for the military power that they're going to defeat one another. And we don't know exactly how that's going to be wor worked out, but here's what's sure. It will be worked out. Because God is intent. He's going to overthrow the humiliation of his people. He's going to overturn the way that the world normally works. That's what he's going to do. 
And with all these images and these declarations, God is saying that the humiliations uh, of having been driven away, of being destitute, of being powerless, of being without uh, resources, it's going to be reversed. This is great news for Zerubbabel, who's trying to lead this nation and knows that he has a monumental task in front of him and knows that he's neglected it for 16 years. Second, thing that God says he's going to do. He's going to make Zerubbabel a symbol of his commitment to send a Messiah. A Messiah. That's what he means when he says in verse 23 that I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. There's going to be something about the descendant of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel himself, or a descendant of Zerubbabel, that in some way... Uh, Zerubbabel is going to be singled out as a significant personage in, the, in relationship to the Messiah. Now, how is that going to be solved when, as I just told you, and I'm going to uh, talk about tomorrow, tomorrow night, that there is a person back there in the line of Zerubbabel that, me, that no descendant of his is ever going to be the Messiah. And yet God is saying to Zerubbabel, you're going to be significant. You're going to be like a signet ring. That's code language in the, in the Old Testament, just like the, the word my servant. That's, God, that's the, the favorite word of Isaiah for the Messiah. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant, God's servant who's going to come. And so all of this is language that Jews would have understood was about the Messiah. On that day, it's a technical term in Scripture. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day when God's plan for, to redeem the world uh, is, is consummated, the day when the final destiny of believers and unbelievers is made known to all. It will be a descendant of Zerubbabel as a signet ring, a sign that of God's stamp of approval, of God's uh, desire to bless it will be a descendant of Zerubbabel who will be a signet ring of God, a seal of God's covenant love. As I just said, my servant. He calls Zerubbabel my servant. It was a term that hints at the Messiah. All of this is ascribed not to the merits of Zerubbabel, but to God's grace-filled choice to bless the nation through, uh, and through the nation, the world. So what's the significance of this? Well, the significance is that your situation is never hopeless. Israel thought their situation was hopeless, but it wasn't because God was their God, because God had made promises to them, because God was going nowhere, because God had made a covenant with them, that God was going to bless them. He, was go- he said, I am with you. Consider this. Consider this. Consider- think about this. Think about this. Think more about this. He says it over and over in this two chapters uh, of this book. The Persians of Babylon rule the world uh, and, uh, and, uh, with an iron fist, and they do not look like they're going away, but God says they will. They're going to be defeated. Like Israel, your situation is never hopeless. If you walk with God, God has blessings you can't even imagine right now as you walk down the boulevard of obedience to Him and and faith in Him. Second thing that it means for us is that God's ways may be beyond our comprehension, 
but he nevertheless delights in our faith in him and his promises. We, we may not understand how it's going to, be, how it's going to work out, but, but God has made a promise, and it's going to work out. How many of you like, uh, have ever seen Christmas lights that are in a series? You know what? Do you like those lights? You hate those lights, right? Right? We, we thought that this tree was one of those until we figured out what was wrong and why it wouldn't light up. You know, if, if one light is out in a, it, that's in a series, they're all out. Look how many lights are on this tree. How are you going to find the one that's out? You're going to test every one. And what Americans do is they say, no, I'm not even testing. I'm throwing it out and I'm going to start over. I mean, that's, that's what we do. See, we, we, God's, God's plan sometimes feels like that. And it is to us, to our puny gray matter of, uh, that we have. We don't understand. It's incomprehensible how God is going to work all this out. But he has declared that you don't have to worry about it. He's going to do it. He's going to work it out. He's in control, not us. It's what he does. Zerubbabel had a very limited knowledge of how God was going to bring uh, this about and quite a few legitimate questions like, wait a minute. How can I be a signet ring? How can I have a part in the Messiah? I've got, Lord, I know you remember Conaniah, that guy in my family tree that you said will never, nobody from his family tree will ever sit on the throne of David. How's that going to work out? No matter how enticing, um, you know, God, God is still able to do that. And tomorrow night, uh, in tomorrow night's message, um, you'll, you'll find out more about that. Third thing, if you have believed in the Messiah, you are sealed for both honor and blessing. They had believed in God. They had trusted in him. They had finally started to obey because they trusted in him. And as they started to do that, God says, I am with you and I am going to bless you. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 21, God has put his seal on us as the guarantee of our salvation. Ephesians 1, 13, if you were sealed with the, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians 4, 30 says that we have been sealed for the day of, of redemption. 2 Timothy 2.16 says, he knows who are his. And that's what he was saying to Israel then. You're mine. I know who you are. I know that you belong to me. I know that you're trusting in me. And he's saying that to us too. If we've believed in the Messiah, we're sealed for honor and blessing. He is going to bring blessing and honor to us no matter what is going on around us right now. And in the right now, when you don't feel like honor and blessing is coming your way, is the time when you need to say, Lord, but I trust you. I believe you, that that is coming. And if I have to wait until I die, that's okay. That's what a Christian says. Israel let, let, um, um, had to wait much longer than us. We're far closer to the day of redemption, Right? We're, we're 
2019 plus 520 years closer to the redemption of the world than they were in December 18th, 520 B.C., when this message came to Zerubbabel. Fourth, God's promise to Zerubbabel anticipates Christmas. How? In at least two ways. The signet ring is the statement uh, by God that he is going to send a redeemer, that he would that he's going to keep his promise, and he's going to bless the nation through the family line uh, of David. And it's, it's mind-boggling what the solution is going to be. And, and we know what it was, but we're going to talk about it in, in depth a little bit tomorrow night. We, we know that how did God solve this problem? That nobody from Conaniah's line, from Zerubbabel's line, is going to be, but uh, to uh, finally sit on the throne. Well, because... Zerubbabel is also related to Mary. And Mary, as you know, has an extraordinary birth and conception of her son. Remember that the, pro the prophecy of Jeremiah, if no one from Jeconiah's line can become king, how can Zerubbabel be king and how can the Messiah come from his descendants? We'll talk about it tomorrow night. See, don't forget these things. We need to remember, and that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's about remembering the things that God tells us to remember rather than the things that we want to remember. It's about remembering that God's Word is true. It's about remembering that He is the one who is going to keep, He is, he is the original promise keeper. There was a movement a few years ago, promise keeper, it's still around. But who is the real promise keeper? It is God. He makes promises and he keeps them. Though his ways work across centuries, he is going to keep his promise. He always does. Unlike us sometimes. Remember that. The Lord's Supper is about remembering. You know, when I, when I turn to the Lord's Supper and I think about what we're uh, called to remember in the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper works in our lives or should work in our lives. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll hear these words again, very familiar to you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. God is always trying to get his people to remember things. Uh, always. I, I, need, I need that because I tend to forget things, important things in life. Uh, partly personality, partly because, as my wife says, you're, you're the absent-minded professor. Um, and uh, I, I forget all kinds of things. But Jesus lays real importance on, I want you to remember these things. Th these are, and, and we have to assume that if he wants us to remember these things, it's important for our own spiritual growth. It's important for our own spiritual health. He wants us to, to continually meditate on the things that he said. And the things that he said include Haggai. The things that he spoke through the prophet of himself to the nation. 
that Zerubbabel would be a signet, he would be a sign, he would be a symbol, a powerful symbol of God's faithfulness to keep his word against extraordinary odds, extraordinary uh, uh, complicated situations, and extraordinary uh, issues related to how we disobey. God takes the disobedience of one of the most evil men in the Old Testament, Conaniah, and says, as a result, Conaniah, I've been tracing this line from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and, the, and all of his sons and on down to David and then from David down to here. I've been tracing this line, but Jeconiah, you're so evil that I am not going to let any of your sons, even though you're in that line, you were in that line, none of your sons will ever sit, sit on the throne. None of your sons will ever be the Messiah. So what is God going to do? How is God going to solve it? What is he, how, how does God do that? God does that because he keeps his word. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper and, and we come to the words where Jesus says, I'm laying down my life. This is the blood of my new covenant. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he reminds us as often as you, you come together to, to remind yourself of this, he's telling us something critically important for Christmas and every day of the year. He's telling us that the secret of our love for him is to remembering his sacrifice for us and to remember the promises of God. And so as the men come to share this morning and help me share this morning, um, men, if you would, who are coming to help with the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember, remember that God is a promise keeper, that he keeps his promises and he is going to keep every promise that he made to the people of God, no matter what the, the complications or the challenges to that. He is going to work on those promises. Remember that. Call them to mind. And you might, as the men are coming to serve, and as you're waiting for everyone to be served, you might just call to mind in your own mind the faithfulness of God in your life through the years. The kinds of things that God has done. The kinds of rescues that he has done. The kinds of times when, when you didn't know where to turn and God somehow got you through it and you got to this day. You're here today worshiping with the believing family. Remember those things. Call them to mind. Remember the promises of God. Open your Bible and turn to some of these passages and look at them. And remember that every promise that God makes in this book, he is going to fulfill. Some of you have quoted this. You've said, you've, you've, as you've witnessed it to other people, you've said there's over 300 prophecies related to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. How many of you have used that when you're witnessing to somebody? A lot of us. And they're all fulfilled in Christ. Every one of those prophecies was a promise. And God made good on everyone. Remember that. Because in that, God is looking down through the corridors of history He's looking for you and into your soul and your need and working to provide the Savior that you and I needed. Remember that.